If you know me, you know that I love scary stories. Pretty much all of the scary stories. I like stories about monsters and stories about murderers and stories about apocalypses and all of those things. I enjoy scary stories. Now, for part of my life, I believed that listening to or reading or enjoying scary stories meant that there was that there was a, a fascination in me that I shouldn't have. But here's the truth. Here's the, the, the real reason that scary stories are useful for us. Because they create space in our lives and in our hearts and in our communities for us to come face to face with the things that make us afraid. Because at the root of all of those fears is the reality that the world around us is broken. We say that every single week when we worship together, that the world goes not well. But so often when we think about the world around us going not well, it's hard for us to concretely name the things that are wrong with the world around us. And what scary stories do, whether it's movies or or short stories or books or music, whatever it is, they allow us to put a face on top of the things that are not well all around us. They allow us to look at the world and to look at the flesh and to look at the devil and say that there are systems in the world around us that are broken and and they hurt people and there are uh, brokenness in my heart and in your heart and those hurt the people around us and there is spiritual evil in the world that's around us and all of those are ways that we encounter that brokenness and scary stories allow us to name those things and then allow us to begin to imagine what it would look like for us to overcome those things? What would it look like for us to move beyond the things that hold us down? So that is my impassioned case for the benefit of scary stories. But you may hear that and say, no, I'm still not into that. And that's totally fine. That's absolutely okay. So if you're still not into scary stories, then I would suggest that you go ahead and shut off the podcast now and wait until Sunday. And there'll be a fantastic sermon on Sunday uh, for All Saints Day. But I want to take a moment right now to share with you one of my favorite scary stories. Hop Frog by Edgar Allan Poe. I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking, to tell a good joke, to tell it well was the surest road to his favor. Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers. They all took after the king, too, in being large, corpulent, oily men, as well as inimitable jokers. Whether people grow fat by joking, or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes a joke, I've never been quite able to determine, but certain it is that a lean joker is rara avis and terris. About the refinements, or as he called them, the ghosts of wit, the king troubled himself very little. He had an especial admiration for breadth, 
in a jest, and would often put up with length for the sake of it. Overniceties wearied him. He would have preferred Rabelais' Gargantua to the Zadig of Voltaire, and upon the whole practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones. At the date of my narrative, professing jesters had not altogether gone out of fashion at court. Several of the great continental powers still retained their fools, who wore motley and caps and bells, and who were expected to be always ready with sharp witticisms at a moment's notice, in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table. Our king, as a matter of course, retained his fool. The fact is, he required something in the way of folly, if only to counterbalance the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers, not to mention himself. His fool, or professional jester, was not only a fool, however. His value was trebled in the eyes of the king by the fact of his being also a dwarf and a cripple. Dwarves were as common at court in those days as fools, and many monarchs would have found it rather difficult to get through their days, days are rather longer at court than elsewhere, without having both a jester to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at. But as I have already observed, your jesters, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, are fat, round, and unwieldy, so that it was no small source of self-congratulation that our king in Hot Frog, for this was the fool's name, possessed a triplicate treasure in one person. I believe the name Hot Frog was not given to that dwarf by his sponsors at baptism, but it was conferred upon him by general consent of the seven ministers on account of his inability to walk as other men do. In fact, Hot Frog could only get along with a sort of interjectional gait, something between a leap and a wriggle, a movement that afforded illimitable amusement and, of course, consolation to the king. For notwithstanding the protuberance of his stomach and a constitutional swelling of the head, the king, by his whole court, was accounted a capital figure. But although Hopfrog, through the distortion of his legs, could move only with great pain and difficulty along a road or a floor, the prodigious muscular arms which nature seemed to have bestowed upon him, by way of compensation for deficiency in the lower limbs, enabled him to perform many feats of wondrous dexterity, where trees or ropes were in question or anything else to climb. At such exercises, he certainly much more resembled a squirrel or a small monkey than a frog. I'm not able to say with precision from what country Hop Frog originally came. It was from some barbarous region, however, that no person had ever heard of a vast distance from the court of the king. Hop Frog and a very young girl, a little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvelous dancer, had been forcibly carried off from their prospective homes in adjoining provinces and sent as presents to the king by one of his ever-victorious generals. Under these circumstances, it's not to be wondered at that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, 
they soon became swarm friends. Hopfrog, who although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular, had it not in his power to render Trapetta many services, but she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, although a dwarf, was universally admired and petted, so she possessed much influence, and never failed to use it, whenever she could, for the benefit of Hopfrog. On some grand state occasion, I forget what, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at our court, then the talents of both Hopfrog and Trapetta were sure to be called in play. Hopfrog, in especial, was so inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters, arranging costume for masked balls that nothing could be done, it seems, without his assistance. The night appointed for the fete had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Trippetta's eye with every kind of device which could possibly give a clod to a masquerade. The whole court was in a fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might well be supposed that everybody had come to a decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to what roles they should assume a week or even a month in advance, and in fact there was not a particle of indecision anywhere. Except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. Why they hesitated, I couldn't possibly tell, unless they did it by way of a joke. More probably, they found it difficult, on account of being so fat, to make up their minds. At all events, time flew, and as a last resource, they sent for Trippetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with the seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be in very ill humor. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine, for it excited the poor cripple almost to madness. And madness is no comfortable feeling, but the king loved his practical jokes, and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink, and, as the king called it, to be merrier. Come here, Hopfrog, he said, as the jester and his friend entered the room. Swallow this bumper to the health of your absent friends. Here Hopfrog sighed. And then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters, characters, man. Something novel, out of the way. We're wearied with this everlasting sameness. Come, drink the wine'll brighten your wits. Hopfrog endeavored, as usual, to get up a jest in reply to these advances from the king, but the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink to his absent friends forced tears to his eyes. Many large bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it, humbly from the hand of the tyrant. Ha! <laughs> Roared the latter as the dwarf reluctantly drained the beaker. See what a glass of good wine can do while your eyes are shining already. Poor fellow. His large eyes gleamed rather than shone. For the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table and looked around at the company of ha with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused by the success of the king's joke. 
Now to business, said the Prime Minister, a very fat man. Yes, said the King. Come, Hopfrog, lend us your assistance. Characters, fine fellow. We stand in need of characters, all of us. <laughs> As this was seriously meant for a joke, his laugh was chorused by the seven. Hopfrog also laughed, though feebly and somewhat vacantly. Come, come, the king said impatiently. Have you nothing to suggest? I'm endeavoring to think of something novel, replied the dwarf abstractly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Endeavoring, cried the tyrant fiercely. What do you mean by that? Oh, I perceive you're sulky and you want more wine. Here, drink this. And he poured out another goblet full and offered it to the cripple who merely gazed at it, gasping for breath. Drink, I say, shouted the monster, or by the fiends. The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtiers smirked. Trippetta, pale as a corpse, advanced to the monarch's seat and falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments in evident wonder at her audacity. He seemed quite at a loss for what to do or say. How most becomingly to express his indignation. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet in her face. The poor girl got up as best she could and not daring even to sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What? what? What are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning furiously to the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered in great measure from his intoxication and looked fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face, merely ejaculated, I? I how could it have been me? The sound seemed to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window, wetting his beak upon his cage wires. True, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion, but on the honor of a knight, I could have sworn it was the gritting of the vagabond's teeth. Hereupon the dwarf laughed, and the king was too confirmed a joker to object to anyone's laughing and displayed a set of large, powerful, and very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. The monarch was pacified, and having drained another bumper with no very perceptible ill effects, Hopfrog entered at once and with spirit into the plans for the masquerade. I cannot tell what was the association of the idea, observed he, very tranquilly, as if he had never tasted wine in his life, but just after your majesty had struck the girl and 
thrown the wine in her face just after your majesty had done this and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window. There came into my mind a capital diversion. One of my own country's frolics, often enacted among us at our masquerades, and here it'll be new altogether, unfortunately. It requires a company of eight persons, and here we are, cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of the coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. Come, what's the diversion? We call it, replied the cripple, the eight chained orangutans. And it really is excellent sport if well enacted. We will enact it, replied the king, drawing himself up, lowering his eyelids. The beauty of the game, continued Hop Frog, lies in the fright it occasions among the women. Capital! roared the chorus of the monarch in his ministry. I will equip you as orangutans, proceeded the dwarf. Leave all that to me. The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts. And, of course, they will be as much terrified as astonished. Oh, this is exquisite, exclaimed the king. Hop, frog, I will make a man of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped en masse from your keepers. Your majesty cannot conceive the effect produced at a masquerade by eight chained orangutans imagined to be real ones by most of the company rushing in with savage cries among the crowd delicately and gorgeously habited men and women the contrast is inimitable it must be said the king and the council rose hurriedly as it was growing late to put into execution the scheme of hop frog his mode of equipping the party as orangutans was very simple, but effective enough for his purposes. The animals in question had, at the epoch of my story, very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world. And as the imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more than sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to nature was thus thought to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting stockinet shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some one of the party suggested feathers, but the suggestion was at once overruled by the dwarf, who soon convinced the eight by ocular demonstration that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented by flax. A thick coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First, it was passed around the waist of the king and tied, and then around another of the party and also tied, and then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete and the party stood as far apart from each other as possible, they formed a circle. And to make all things appear natural, Hopfrog 
passed the residue of the chain in two diameters at right angles across the circle, after the fashion adopted at the present day by those who catch chimpanzees and other larger apes in Borneo. A grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place was a large circular room, very lofty, and receiving the light of the sun only through a single window at top. At night, the season for which the apartment was especially designed, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier, depending by a chain from the center of the skylight, and lowered or elevated by means of a counterbalance, as usual, but in order not to look unsightly, this ladder passed outside the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Trepetta's superintendence, but in some particulars, it seems, she had been guided by the calmer judgments of her friend, the dwarf. At his suggestion, it was that on this occasion the chandelier was removed. Its waxen drippings, which, in weather so warm it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not at all be expected to keep out of its center, that is to say, from under the chandelier. Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall, out of the way, and a flambeau emitting a sweet odor was placed in the right hand of each of the caryatids that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. The eight orangutans, taking Hot Frog's advice, waited patiently until midnight when the room was thoroughly filled with masqueraders, before making their appearance. No sooner had the clock ceased striking, however, than they all rushed, or rather rolled in, all together, for the impediment of their chains caused most of the party to fall and all to stumble as they entered. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious, and filled the heart of the king with glee, as had been anticipated, there were not a few of the guests who supposed the ferocious-looking beasts to be some kind of reality. If not precisely orangutan, many women swooned in a fright, and had not the king taken the precaution to exclude all weapons from the saloon, this party might have expiated their frolic in their blood. As it was, a general rush was made for the doors, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and at the dwarf's suggestion, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at its height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, for, in fact, there was much real danger from the pr pressure of the excited crowd, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and which had been drawn up as it, at its removal, might have been seen very gradually to descend until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves at length in its center and, of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, the dwarf, who had followed closely at their heels, incited them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain at the intersection of the two portions, which crossed the circle diametrically at right angles. Here, with rapidity of thought, 
he inserted the hook from which the chandelier had been wont to depend, and in an instant, by some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward as to take the hook out of reach, and as an inevitable consequence to drag the orangutans together in close connection face to face. The masqueraders by this time had recovered in some measure from their alarm, and beginning to regard the whole matter as a well-contrived pleasantry, set up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. "'Leave them to me!' screamed Hot Frog, his shrill voice making itself easily heard above the den. "'Leave them to me! I fancy I know them. If I can only get a good look at them, I'll tell you who they are!' Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall, when seizing a flambeau from where one of the caryatids, he returned, and as he went to the center of the room, leaped with the agility of a monkey upon the king's head, and thence clambered a few feet up the chain, holding down the torch to examine the group of orangutans, still screaming, I shall soon find out who they are. And now, while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle, and the chain flew violently up about thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans, leaving them suspended in midair between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers, and still, as if nothing were the matter, continued to thrust the torch down toward them, as though endeavoring to discover who they were, and so thoroughly astonished were the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by just such a low, harsh, grating sound, as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors, when the former threw the wine in the face of Trepetta. But on the present occasion there could be no question as to whence the sound ensued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf, who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenance of the king and his seven companions. Ah, <laughs> at length the infuriated jester said, Aha, I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen cloak which enveloped him, which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. At length, the flame, suddenly increasing in virulence, forced the jester to climb higher up the chain, to be out of their reach, and as he made his movement, 
the crowd again sank for a brief instant into silence. The dwarf seized this opportunity and once more spoke. I see now distinctly, he said, what manner of people these maskers are. They are a great king and his seven privy counselors. A king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl, and his seven counselors who abet him in the outrage. As for myself, I am simply Hop Frog, the jester, and this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, horrendous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely up to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Trepetta, stationed on the roof of the saloon, had been the accomplice of her friends in his fiery revenge, and that together they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was seen again. Haunted Houses by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow All houses wherein men have lived and died are haunted houses. Through the open doors the harmless phantoms on their errands glide with feet that make no sound upon the floors. We meet them at the doorway, on the stair, along the passages they come and go, impalpable impressions on the air, a sense of something moving to and fro. There are more guests at table than the hosts invited. The illuminated hall is thronged with quiet, inoffensive ghosts, as silent as the pictures on the wall. The stranger at my fireside cannot see the forms I see nor hear the sounds I hear. He but perceives what is, while unto me all that has been is visible and clear. We have no title deeds to house or lands, owners and occupants of earlier dates from graves forgotten stretch their dusty hands and hold in Mormon still their old estates. The spirit world around this world of sense floats like an atmosphere and everywhere wafts through these ethereal mists and vapors dense a vital breath of more ethereal air. Our little lives are kept in equipoise by opposite attractions and desires. The struggle of the instinct that enjoys and the more noble instinct that aspires. These perturbations, this perpetual jar of earthly wants and aspirations high come 
from the influence of an unseen star, an undiscovered planet in our sky. And as the moon from some dark gate of cloud throws o'er the sea a floating bridge of light, across whose trembling planks our fancies crowd into the realm of mystery and night. So from the world of spirits there descends a bridge of light connecting it with this, or whose unsteady floor that sways and bends. Wander our thoughts above the dark abyss. <laughs>